0: Welcome to HOPE, everybody. Uh, That's a clip from a TV show called Home Improvement. It was one of the most popular sitcoms in the 1990s. And it uh, starred Tim Allen. He played Tim the Tool Man, Taylor. And pretty much every episode, uh, he was biting off more than he could chew. And the episode would revolve around, how do we save Tim from whatever mess that he has made? And and most of the time, they were relational messes, as you started to see in that clip. Sometimes the messes are relationships at work, but other times it's relationships in terms of his marriage or relationships with uh, his kids, uh, parenting kinds of messes. Over the last six weeks, we've been in a message series here called hope for Iowa. Today we're closing out that message series by taking a look at what is it that saves us from the messes in our life. Now the Apostle Paul writing uh, to uh, the Romans right in the middle of that Bible reading that you just heard uh, Jean Ann read for us. I want us to read together a little uh, part of what Paul writes in there. It's uh, verse 9. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This is really the heart of the Christian faith. Salvation through Jesus Christ. We could begin and end each week with this verse. This is what it's all about. What does it mean to be people who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ? At Hope, one of the ways we kind of talk about it is we exist to make heaven more crowded. We exist to make heaven more crowded. We want the whole world to be saved because they have put their faith in Jesus. They believe in Jesus. Uh, One of the great realities of the role that I play here at Hope, I get to see this church building getting more and more crowded all the time. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. We don't talk about money around Hope a whole lot. I think most of you are are okay with that. Uh, But hopefully you've noticed that we're expanding the parking lot. We're getting ready to add uh, additional parking. Um, We didn't budget to do that. Uh, We didn't say, hey, in our budget this year, we need to make sure we put in enough money to add parking. But because of the growth of this church and your faithful and generous giving, we have enough extra money uh, to be able to do that. Now, some people say, Pastor Scott, whatever you do, don't tell people we have extra money in the budget. (laughs) That means they'll, they'll think we don't have to give anymore. And that would be true at a church that wasn't kind of bought into the mission that this church is about. But if the church is all in with the mission, which I think we are to reach out to the world around us, to make heaven more crowded, then I think people are just going to give because it's a matter of faith. And so um, we've got all kinds of ways in which we're experiencing crowdedness at this church. The weekend, uh, the parking lot is pretty crowded. Uh, Right below us in the harbor, in the classrooms where Hope Kids is happening and the kids are learning the stories uh, of faith and God's love for them, those are getting more and more crowded all the time. If you were here on Wednesday night when we kicked off a lot of ministry to children and families and students, it was a holy mess. (laughs) Beautiful and chaotic with more students showing up. As Ashley said in the announcements, We had to change the time for ignition, our our ministry to high school students, because there just wasn't enough room in the building when uh, the eighth graders and the high schoolers are here. So after the 11 o'clock service, I'm going to be driving down to West Des Moines for the annual meeting, where one of the agenda items will be to ask permission to have a giving campaign later this fall, where together we'll get to pray and talk about what might it look like to expand by about 20,000 square feet uh, right here on our facility. And so that's kind of where we're going over the next couple of months. Uh, together as a church, but back to today we want to talk about this idea of salvation. Uh, One of the things that happens is uh, terms that uh, were written with an original meaning oftentimes over church history get hijacked and they start to mean something different than what the biblical authors intended, something less than, something other than what the biblical writers meant when they first wrote the word down and so salvation is one of those words. We look at this verse in in Romans 10, 9 that we read earlier. Paul's talking about salvation. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation, a really important, a very biblical uh, idea. It's something we need to talk about a lot and think about a lot and explore together a lot. So, what if I told you our strategy between now and Christmas is I'm going to sign every staff member at Hope Ankeny, a certain segment of the congregation, and they will call you up to schedule a time to come to your house and ask you three questions. Number one, are you saved? If you're married, is your spouse saved? If you have kids, are your kids saved? Don't you think that sounds like a great strategy? <laughs> I think too, no, no, none of the congregate, it, no, it's not a good strategy. And. Two things would happen, right? You would all start emailing me or showing up in my office saying, what in the world is going on? And number two, we would lose all of our staff because none of them would want to do that. But why? Salvation is this really important biblical idea. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Paul writes throughout the the book of Romans how important salvation is, how important it is to send people out, to reach out to the world around us to make sure that we save everyone so that everyone can be saved by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So why do we have sort of this instinctual repulsive response to the idea of somebody coming to our door and asking us, are you saved? Or or why would we shake our heads and say it's a bad evangelistic strategy to just do sort of drive-by evangelism, go up to complete strangers and say, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Those are bad evangelistic strategies because we've misunderstood the idea of salvation, the biblical idea of salvation. Those kinds of approaches to evangelism, which simply means good news, evangelism means good news, sharing the good news. That, it doesn't feel like good news when a complete stranger comes up to you and starts talking to you about eternity. That, that strategy, that approach to evangelism, it separates a relationship from salvation. And what we see when we look closely at Scripture, and you don't even have to look very closely, that salvation is always, always closely connected to relationship. Let's look at the next verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 10. Read this out loud with me. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Paul makes this connection in in multiple places throughout the book of Romans between these two phrases, these two ideas. Being made right with God and salvation are very closely connected for Paul. Here's how he begins this chapter, Romans chapter 10. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. So the whole chapter is about how do we get saved? How do people become saved? Verse 2, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. Misdirected zeal. A lot of our evangelistic approaches, a lot of our ways of talking about and understanding salvation today in, in the American church, it's misdirected zeal. And so Paul writes this in verse 3. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Over and over again, we, we see Paul taking this idea of getting right with God, and it's almost like he's saying it's synonymous with salvation. Salvation equals being made right with God. Now, the term, the Greek word behind this phrase, made right with God, is a kind of a fun Greek word, dikeosune. Osune. Isn't that fun to say? Let's say that together. osune. It most often gets translated righteous. And then here's what we've done with the term righteous over the years. We've created boxes. We've created categories. And we've said there are certain behaviors and certain activities that get classified as righteous, other activities and behaviors that get classified as unrighteous, There are certain ways of living that are holy and good and other ways of living that are sinful and bad. And we have these categories, these boxes, right? Then we take it to the next level and we put people into these boxes. We put people into these categories. If you are a person who's engaging in these activities and behaviors that are unrighteous, then you are not saved. And the flip would be true. If you're engaging in activities and behaviors that are righteous and holy and good, then you are saved. This is kind of what we've done. The only problem with that is that's not the Christian faith. That's not what the Christian faith teaches. Let's go back to the uh, verse 3, Romans 10, verse 3. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. And when we do this categorizing thing and we put people into these boxes based on behavior, based on what we do, that's not God's way. That's the law, that's the Old Testament understanding of how faith works. Keeping the law, obedience to the law, following the law, doing, and and sort of the way we think about our life, then the whole goal of faith is to get to the end of my life and I've done at least one more good thing or righteous thing than bad thing or uh, unrighteous thing. And then that's what makes me right with God. Misunderstanding of how the whole thing works. And when that is our understanding, when we refuse to accept God's way, and we go our own way of being made right with God by trying to follow the law, trying to keep the law, trying to be good enough, what ends up happening is we know pretty quickly we're not good enough. And we absolutely start to believe, I'm not enough, I'm not valuable, I'm not lovable, And then we start working really hard because that's what we want in life. We all want these relationships, connections with one another, connection with God relationally. And when we don't have that, we work really, really hard to get people around us to like us. And so maybe we start to do or to be uh, living up to the expectations that others have placed on us i got to be who my parents want me to be or who my teacher wants me to be or my group of friends, the role that they want me to play or who my boss wants me to play. i got to do and i got to be this person. And we end up creating a false self. And we become attached to this false self because we think it's saving us. We think it's giving us what we really want, these relationships. We become so attached to it, you could even say we become addicted to our false self. That's not God's way. That's the way of the law will lead us down that road. God's way is the way of grace. And, and grace works by saying, there is a God who is good and loving and perfect, and that good and loving and perfect God created you. Created you good. Created you exactly the way God wanted you to be. And so the starting place with grace is you're enough. You're valuable. You are loved simply because you are. And if we can actually put our faith in that, If we can believe that, that that's who we were created, that's our true self, that more and more all the time we can understand God's love for us and that love and grace and mercy can fill us and then flowing out of us, we might want to reach out to the world around us and let them know about this reality of being loved by God and it'll feel really good to people. I would like to feel that too. And we might actually start engaging in activities or behaviors that we would classify as good or or righteous, but you understand it's flowing out of who we actually are. It's flowing out of our true self. It's it's not some way of trying to earn or to prove or win approval. Let's go back to this word DK osune. D.K. osune, when we translate it righteous, and then what we've done with it, we've said righteousness is all about what I do. But when you look closely at the definition of D.K. the heart of the definition is it's the state of someone who is as they ought to be. That's what it means to be righteous, to be made right with God. The state of someone who is as they ought to be. In other words, righteousness is not a, a whole bunch of activities and behaviors that I do. Righteousness is an identity. Righteousness is who I am. And, and faith is learning to trust that this is who God says I am. And then I can move more and more wholly and fully and truly into this person that God created me to be, my true self, all the time. The problem is, the problem is, most of us develop our false self so early in life, we've been living out of our false self for so long, we don't even know it's our false self. We just think, this is who I am. This is the way I've always been, the way I've always been wired. We're we're not aware. We can't see clearly the ways in which our false self is leading us down a path of destruction. And more and more all the time, I'm convinced this is what Jesus is talking about in this, I think, somewhat strange and peculiar passage in John chapter 12. It's a verse that I've never really liked a whole lot. It's never quite sat right with me. Go ahead and go to the next slide. John chapter 12, verse 25. Or else I'll just read it to you from the back screen. If someone's up there, they can go to the next slide. Those who love their life. There it is. Those who love their life. I, pretty soon I'm not going to be able to read it off the back screen. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And we, we talk about this a lot. We, we go to this verse a lot. It's not my favorite verse. And, and part of the reason is it almost makes Jesus sound cruel and I don't think Jesus is cruel. It almost makes Jesus sound like the whole goal of faith, of following after Jesus, is to be as miserable as you can possibly be. Care nothing for your life. That's the goal. But, but that contradicts with other things Jesus says. Like, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So what do I do with this verse? When I start putting this verse in the context of true self versus false self, it actually starts to make a ton of sense to me. That what Jesus wants for me, what Jesus wants for each of us, is Freedom, personal liberation, not self-punishment, but Jesus wants to set us free from the grip our false self has on us, the unhealthy ways that we are attached to things that, that aren't actually helping us, that are hurting us. He wants to set us free from that so we can live out of our true self. Tim Allen in, in this show, uh, Home Improvement, he becomes a real famous and successful guy, uh, starts doing movie roles, and uh, his fame, celebrity gets bigger and bigger all the time. Life became pretty good for, for Tim Allen, but it wasn't always that way. He has an interview several years ago now with Elizabeth Vargas of ABC News, and I want you to watch a portion of this interview. He talks about faith, he talks about God, but as, as you're listening to it, see if you can sort of pick up on the ways in which a false self, living out of a false self, was not actually helping him experience the best of life. Take a look. I hate people telling me what
1: to do. I hate it. And stand-up, it's all me. I decide when I do the jokes. I decide where the punchline is. I decide when to go on. I make every decision.
2: Alan may be in control now, but for much of his life, he wasn't. When he was just 11 years old, his world was shattered when his father was killed by a drunk driver.
1: I've had um, a curious relationship with God since my father died.
2: The law set Alan on a self-destructive path, hard partying, and in 1979, a cocaine bust which landed him in prison for two years.
1: Don't ever sell drugs to policemen. (laughs) They don't like it, they tend to tell judges, people come get you, and then you eat very bad food for a long time.
2: What do you think is the most important thing you learned? I'm a survivor,
1: number one. Mm -hmm. I know how to survive. Uh, My sense of humor clearly is my ally.
2: So in a certain sense, comedy saved you? Always does. You actually got a a phone call one day from your parole officer and the next day from Jeffrey Katzenberg at Disney?
1: Roloff said, you're released, everything was going well, and then the Katzenberg called me and said, we'd like you to be part of the Disney family.
2: Did the irony strike you? Um, did you say it, Jeffrey and Fallon? My life M. M. is <laughs> just, filled ir- just
1: filled with irony.
2: <laughs> that conversation spawned home improvement and soon white-hot celebrity. Alan parlayed that popularity onto the big screen, starring in a slew of family favorites like The Santa Claus and Toy Come Story.
1: Guys, let's get our parts together, get ready, and go out on a high note. I pumped for you, my little ale ice. By
2: 1997, Alan had conquered Hollywood, but still had not wrestled his own demons to the ground. Your dad was killed by a drunk driver. Mm-hmm. You and your adult life were arrested for drunk driving. I
1: find it humiliating, that, in, and I'm, by the grace of God, I didn't hurt anybody or myself for the years that I was you know, drinking and driving. I could have been that guy that did that to us.
2: But you did say it gave you your greatest gift, which is sobriety. Sobriety,
1: yeah. Well, the cha- I never thought I, I thought it would be no fun, and it turns out fun has nothing to do with being drunk, at least for me it does. not
2: So you know yourself better.
1: Whether you're a true believer or a pagan. <laughs>
2: and he spends a lot of time working on that curious relationship with God, or, as he says, the builder. Oh, my
1: God. Honey, don't say God in church. <laughs> I always do ask, whoever put me here, mm-hmm. the builder, what did you want me to do?
2: Do you think people would be surprised to know how deeply religious or spiritual you are?
1: Well, if you, if you know me, you know it. I don't push it. I just want a relationship with whoever built me. This is too much, too weird that it happened by accident. It didn't happen by accident. I don't feel that it did.
0: Tim Allen knew he needed to be saved from a very early age. Knew he needed to be saved. His dad dies. He's 11 years old. Think of the hurt, the pain, the loss, the grief connected with that. What do you do? He turns to comedy, and and she says at one point, in a a certain sense, comedy saved you. And again, I think there's a real fine line here, because there's a part of that that's going to end up being a really good and helpful thing, but it was also part of his false self. I'm going to use comedy to save me from the pain that I'm experiencing. I'm going to try to use comedy to save me in a way that only God can actually save me. So comedy didn't actually work to save him. And, and when he continued to experience the pain of that loss, he started to turn to other things in his false self, trying to find that salvation that he's looking for. But at, at one point she says to him, you know, you understand yourself better. You know yourself better. And that's what started to happen slowly over time, failure after failure after failure. He starts to wake up and he starts to see the ways in which he's living out of his false self, thinking it'll save him, but it's actually making things worse. Now, uh, what I would say is, he knows himself better, he knows himself the way God knows him, the way God sees him, and that's what's changing things. That's what is making things better. So how well do you know yourself? Do you know yourself well enough to answer this question, what is the self we need to lose and what is the self we need to find? You know, Jesus is saying there, there's a self that's going to lead to destruction. There's a self that's going to lead to life. What's the self you need to lose and what's the self you need to find? And, and as we kind of wrestle with that, we start to figure out what's my true self, what's my false self. I, I think one of the fascinating things to me is so many times for, for most of us, our greatest strength can also be our greatest weakness. It just kind of depends on the focus. And as we start to discern when my strength is actually turning into a weakness, that's one of the ways we can discover true self, false self. I'll give you an example in my life how this works. I'm the middle of three boys. And so in my family growing up, one of the roles I played was peacemaker. I could help one of my brothers see things from the perspective of my other brother and kind of help re- resolve conflict that way. Uh, I could help parents see things from kids' point of view. Now I'm a pastor at a multi-site church. And so I sometimes play the role of peacemaker at Hope, where when we're talking about what's best for, for the entirety of Hope, for all the campuses of Hope, I can help the leadership of our particular campus. See, this is why this is what's best for hope. And the flip is true. When I'm talking with the leadership of hope, I can help them see things from the perspective of an individual campus. And so I play that role of peacemaker, which is good. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Where that strength becomes a weakness is because I hate conflict. I just want everyone to get along. Can't we just all get along? Well, sometimes there are decisions that need to be made and crucial conversations that need to happen. And not everyone is going to be happy. And when I'm living out of my false self and the decision gets made somebody is unhappy with instead of understanding they're unhappy with the decision i interpret it as they're unhappy with me when i'm living out of my true self and i know that i'm loved by god just the way i am not because of how well i might perform or how poorly i might perform might cause me to lose god's love then when tough decisions are made and people are upset by it i don't have to take it personally i don't know what it is for you well, what are those strengths that sometimes become weaknesses for you, and, and how do you start to figure it out? My wife and I, uh, Wendy, we've been talking about this a lot, particularly as it relates to marriage, as it relates to parenting, and Wendy thinks, like, she, she always visualizes things, so she's always sketching and drawing pictures and that sort of thing, so I'm going to put a, a picture up on a screen that represents something that she has drawn and that, that we've been talking about a lot lately. Here, here's how it's supposed to work. It's very simple kind of drawing, right? But we've got God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God pours into us, pours love and grace and life, uh, mercy, forgiveness, hope, joy, peace. God pours into us. That's how it's supposed to work. Uh, and that's what will save us. God's the only one who has what it takes to save us. And then as we are saved by being filled up with that love and and putting our trust and our faith and our belief in who God is, that fills us up and it kind of funnels through us. as, As God's love makes its way through us, then we can pour out God's love and grace into the lives of the people around us, whether it's family or friends or neighbors. That's the way the flow is supposed to work. The problem is way too many times we reverse the flow when we're living out of our false self. And so think about it in terms of a parent-child relationship. God pours into a parent, fills them up. Parents pour into their children, fill them up. That's the way it's supposed to work. Too many times, too many times parents are trying to extract something from their kids to make uh, parents feel better. That's a distorted, a reversed flow, a distorted understanding of how it's supposed to work. Kids aren't supposed to have what it takes to fill us up. God has what it takes to fill us up. So when we're using our kids' activities, or our kids' behaviors, or our kids' successes, as that's what's going to save me, that's what's going to make me feel okay about myself and my life, uh, that would be sinful, would be another way to talk about it. That would not be right. That's not living out of who we actually are. And this happens in all sorts of ways. In, in all sorts of ways, instead of allowing God to be the one who fills us up, we're trying to use all sorts of other things to fill us up. And we've got to let go of that. We've got to surrender to that. And I'll just tell you, it's really hard, particularly in our part of the world, where we have a real strong value on being able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and rugged individualism. And you can do it, you can do it, you can do it if you just try hard enough. That works in a lot of ways. It doesn't work when it comes to faith. And so we'll find ourselves just kind of constantly struggling with this all the time. But if we can have someone in our life who will help us kind of point out everyone, I think maybe you're trying to pull something out of the kids there that they're not supposed to be giving you. You're trying to get filled up by them or a relationship at work or, or whatever it might be. How can we learn to let go of the false self and allow this true self-reality to work? It requires tremendous uh, surrender, letting go, humility, humility, you heard in the Hope 360 talking about this ministry you have at Hope, Celebrate Recovery, Thursday nights in West Des Moines. It's Monday nights here in Ankeny. And a lot of people think Celebrate Recovery is just for people with addiction to drugs or alcohol or substances. Hopefully you've heard me use the word addiction as we're talking about the ways in which we relate to our false self. We're attached to it in unhealthy ways. We're addicted to it. So Celebrate Recovery is for all of us. Because all I think another way of understanding sin is our addiction to our false self. Instead of trusting who God created us to be. Celebrate recovery, one of the things they do is they, they look at these steps to recovery. Some of you are maybe familiar with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard somebody say one time: summary of the first three steps of the 12 steps is pretty simple. I can't, God can, I'll let go. I can't, God can. I'll let go. Let's all say that together. I can't. God can. I'll let go. It's the process of surrender, the process of letting go, the process of humbling ourselves enough to trust my only hope for salvation is for God to pour his love into me so that I can die to my false self and live from my true self. Humility is really important. Uh, Tim, the tool man, Taylor, understands this in the episode that, that we watched at the beginning of, of the message. He's messing things up relationally and, and when he messes things up and he doesn't know what to do, he always goes and talks to his neighbor for some wisdom uh, from Wilson. Take a look.
1: Hi Wilson. Hi ho, neighbor. What are you cooking? Boiling up some willow bark. It's an no old folk remedy for a headache. I got aspirin, no. <laughs> Tim, it wouldn't be the same. Mankind may have given me the headache, but nature will take it away. Sure could have used that today. Mm. Bad day today, the worst. I yell at Jill. I insult Al and I knocked a guest out in my show with a four by eight. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is
1: a bad day, Well. Yeah who was your guest by the way you wouldn't know him he's the pioneer of home repair oh you mean Bob Vila (laughs) you know him oh everybody knows Bob I can see how a guy like that might intimidate you though he knows an awful lot about tools that's just it why would he intimidate me Why does everybody think he knows more about tools than I do well does he Tim yeah he knew what an ads was without cheating. Mm-hmm, yes, the old medieval wood-shaping tool. <laughs> How am I supposed to top that? Oh, you can't, Tim. Okay, so I go back on my show and look like a fool again. Tim, 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 the first step for greatness is humbling yourself. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't try to have all the answers and instead ask more questions. You see, Tim, a truly wise man always has more questions than answers. So, would that make me wiser than you, Wilson? Well, what do you think, Tim?
0: (laughs) How do you discern true self, false self? There was a phrase uh, Tim used there, how do I top that? How, How do I become someone who's better than Bob Vila? I think that's a question that comes from our false self. When we start comparing ourselves, how do I top them? How can I be more important? How can I be better than, more successful than whatever it might be? Well, you wonder if Bob Via ever wonders, how can I be as funny as Tim Allen? That would be coming from his false self. What if, he, what if we could just learn to accept who God created us to be, and that's good, and that's great, and that's enough? What if we could radically accept being radically accepted? That's what God's love is for each of us, and that can change Everything, that can save you.